You're listening to Southside Baptist Church Podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. If the Bible commands us to be filled with the Holy Spirit, what the Bible is saying is you and I are to be filled. It uses their Greek word, uh, uh, pleuro, or, or something to that equivalent. It's the picture of a ship lifting its sails and the wind filling the sails, and thereby the ship is propelled forward. You and I are in a quest for holiness corporately. We're helping each other be holy. That's what we're involved in. And holiness, the Holy Spirit, is in a quest in our lives individually and corporately for what? For control. So we said that. Then we said with universal church, local church. Thirdly, we talked about denominations. Denominations, you remember, were like-minded churches. We're Southern Baptists. We're part of over 40,000 churches that have doctrinal distinctives. But more than that, we're joined together for a task. The task is the Great Commission. We have the largest evangelical sending body of missionaries in the world. We are about hospitals, about seminaries, about training and equipping. But most of all, we're about taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Denominations, we said this, they're not a bad thing. They're getting a bad rap today, but I can tell you this much, folks. The danger today is to move too far away from denominational distinctives. So that, that's just, a, they're like-minded churches which agree in doctrine. They're united to accomplish a task. I wrote this down. Paul in the early church, Paul in the early church did the same thing for the sake of Jerusalem. Paul linked churches together. You remember that? Galatia, Ephesus, Laodicea, Corinth. He linked all of these churches together to ensure that these churches would guard doctrinal, that they would be doctrinally accountable and they would also be churches of integrity as well as ministering to the believers back in Jerusalem. Number four, we talked about our final authority. What's our final authority? It's what? Okay, hold your Bible up. If you don't have one, hold, help hold the Bible up with the person next to you. Now, I told you this much. If you don't have a Bible, see Doug Payne after the service, and Doug Payne will make sure that you get a Bible. Okay, you can put them down now. The Bible is your final authority. In other words, I'm not your final authority. As much as I love our denomination, it's not your final authority. The president is not your final authority. The pope is not your final authority. The Vatican is not your final authority. What is your final authority? The word of God. In the Shona language, we said, Shokamomwadi. Bible, the Bible. So your final authority. Now somebody, um, somebody, Doug, look up 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Because you remember this passage Paul is writing to Timothy. This is the last letter that Paul will write. Read that for us and read it real loud. Yeah. Real loud. Okay. 
Okay, so the Bible is our final authority. And, the, and, the, and Paul said this, last letter he ever wrote, wrote it from prison, getting ready to die. He tells Timothy, he says, Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed. You know what that means in the Greek? It means the very breath of God. And it is profitable for reproof, for correction, for training and righteousness. It's profitable to make the man of God, you and I, complete mature. The Bible is an intricate part. Our deacons, a little while ago, were talking in deacons meeting. And one of the things that Eric said as a chairman of deacons, he said, men, he said, let me ask you a question. He said, this question was posed to me. How much time are you spending in the Word of God? That's a good question. In fact, let me ask you this. You turn to the person next to them and tell them how much time you're spending in the Word of God. Uh-oh. No, I'm teasing. Don't do that. Now, Timothy is told, Timothy was told to teach sound doctrine. Let me ask you something. Where do you get the sound doctrine from? The Bible said he got it from two women, Eunice and Lois. Do you remember who they were? They were his mother, they were his mom, and they were his grandmother. Stan, I thought about John Wesley and Susanna Wesley. She was, the, she was one of 29 children. John Wesley was one of 19. Let me tell you what Suzanne Wesley, John Wesley said. This great man of God said this. He said, my mother's influence in my life was unparalleled to anybody else's. Just such a powerful figure in his life. So Timothy was told to teach sound doctrine. He got it from his mother and his grandmother. In the last days, the Bible said men will not endure what? Sound doctrine. They'll heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. In other words, they'll say, I don't want to hear that. I want to hear something more pleasant, something more conducive to what I think. Um, you know, so anyway. Let me tell you what my grandmother used to write in a Bible. You know what she used to write in a Bible? Great woman of God. She wrote in the Bible, every Bible, road map to heaven. Isn't that good? Road map to heaven. This is your instruction manual for life. So just hold it up again. I've got my instruction manual with me. Okay, so here it is. Now, how many of you remember, if you're a parent, oh, I've got to be careful here. How many of you remember when Santa Claus would leave an unassembled item at your house? I remember in seminary, I was down at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. And Santa Claus had left an unassembled wagon. So I pulled out the instructions. And I threw them off to the side. I laid all the parts out. And I began to put that thing together. Now it was like 1 o'clock in the morning. We lived in an apartment complex with other people around us. And I undoubtedly Santa Claus had left everybody else's put together. But not mine. So I got down there. And it finally said this. It I mean, I, did, I wasn't reading the instructions. I was just winging it, doing it on my own. I put the two cap nuts on the axle, on each end of the axle. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Any dad know what I'm talking about? If you read the instruction manual, it says this. Make sure that all parts are on the axle before you put the last wing nut on. I didn't do that. Now, folks, I was at a seminary. Uh, as my dad said, that'll make a preacher cuss. It almost made a preacher cuss. You see, I ignored the instruction manual and thereby put myself in great heartache, 
lost a lot of sleep, just about never got the thing off, finally got it back on, and the wheel was wobbly. It just didn't quite ever work right. Life is that way. Your final authority is the Bible. It's the instruction manual, and it's important. That's why your pastor, outside of the last couple of weeks, that's why I preach expository, exegetical, verse by verse, taking you through books of the Bible. That's critical so that you know your what? You know your final authority. Now, um, then we talked about doctrine. Hebrews 9.22. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. That's a statement. That statement is pivotal to our doctrinal stance, not only in our denomination, but all evangelical denominations. Doesn't matter, Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian, it doesn't matter, Pentecostal, we all agree on Hebrews 9.22, that doctrinal statement, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of what? Sin. So you've got to shed blood. Now let me give you a couple of quotes real quickly. I know I'm moving fast. A doctrinal truth such as that is not up for your interpretation, your thought, your opinion. It's not a particular denominational distinctive of one evangelical group over another. That is a doctrinal statement that is central to Christianity. If you remove that doctrinal statement, you alter our faith itself. Do you understand that? If you say, hey, we don't like this blood talk. We don't like this blood atonement. And remember, atonement means to cover. It means reconciliation. Adam and Eve sinned, they hid from God. God ek kaleo, God called and they did what? Here we are, Lord. With their fig leaves, God was the first one to do what? Kill. He killed an animal to shed blood to do what? To cover what? Their sin, the results of their sin. You see, that's a doctrine that is all the way to the end in Revelation. We see the behold the Lamb of God who washes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist and ultimately even Revelation, behold the Lamb of God. Does that make sense? Now one more quote here real quickly. Regardless of the denominational identity, doesn't matter, Methodist, Presbyterian, Baptist, uh, Pentecostal or whatever, Hebrews 9.22 would be accepted by all denominations, all evangelical denominations as a central core belief to our theological system. Doctrine, hear me, listen closely, doctrine is not proof texting something. That's what the Jehovah's Witness and and the Mormons come into your home and do. They proof text and they stump you. Doctrine is not a proof text. Doctrine is from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Go back to Hebrews 9.22. Without the shedding of blood, there's no what? There's no remission, no forgiveness of sin. God sheds blood out of the gate almost in the garden to cover man's sin, reconciling man to God. Then we see in Moses, the Passover, the shedding of blood, and so that the death angel would pass over. Levitical sacrificial system. Ultimately, we get to the New Testament, and John says, Behold the Lamb of God. He's pointing to who? Jesus. The Bible in the Old Testament, the writer of Hebrews says it's a shadow. It's preparing us for Hebrews 9.22. It's preparing us for Jesus. Does that make sense? So, Then we talked about last, how do you become a part of the ecclesia? 
And we looked at Matthew chapter 16 and we said, watch this sequence here. The first thing Jesus says is, who do you men say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the Christos, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. You are God in the flesh, you're the Messiah, you're the one that we've been looking to. So first of all, we said to become a true Christian, you and I come to a recognition of the identity of Jesus Christ and we refuse to compromise that. We can't compromise it. Now, hey, that may be easy here, but if you're on a beach and an Islamic extremist is holding a sword over your head and he says, I want you to recant the identity of Christ. If you say that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God, the only way to heaven, then I want you to know something. I'm going to take your head off right here. Let me tell you something. The Romans took Paul's head off for exactly what he believed. We can never compromise the identity of Jesus Christ. So number one, Peter reckoned. He said, you're the Christ. Number two, we said this, there's repentance. Once we see who Christ is, then we repent, we do an about face. We not only see Christ's sinlessness, you remember the thief on the cross? He turned to the other thief and said, he's, not, he's done nothing wrong. He's innocent. We're guilty. He's innocent. When we recognize who Christ is, we see his sinlessness, we see our sinfulness, and we repent. The word there in the Greek is metanoia. It means a change of mind. G. Campbell Morgan said you can't have a change of heart until you have a change of mind. It's a 180. It's a 180. We repent. You know, we think of ourselves differently. Number three, we receive Christ. What do you remember? Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door. Who's standing at the door? Jesus. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who hears my voice and will open the door, we recognize him, we hear him knocking on our heart's door, we open up our heart, we open up our life, and we invite him where? In. Now, simultaneous, we have two baptisms. Number one, we are now filled with Jesus Christ. We've got the Holy Spirit living in us. The Holy Spirit is baptized into us. We are, we are now immersed in the Holy Spirit and we in turn are baptized into the body of Christ. Now let me tell you real quickly, this is not picking on him. If, if you were sitting there talking to a Pentecostal, a Pentecostal would ask you this question. Have you, they would call it the second work of grace they would basically say, have you been baptized, I'm just going to abbreviate it, in the Holy Spirit? And has it been evidenced in the speaking in tongues? And you may say, well, what do, what do they mean by that? Now, Baptists, we hold a different view here. We basically believe that when a believer becomes a Christian, that instantaneously they are filled with the Holy Spirit. They are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. And at the same time, they are baptized in the body of Christ. We believe it's in, we don't believe you get saved and then later you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. We don't believe that. Now, turn to Romans 8 9 and it'll show you why. In Romans chapter 8, verse 9, and when you get there, um, 
Alan, would you read that real loud? We want to make sure people on the website can hear you. So you can move this way to make sure they can kind of pick it up. And I think it's Romans 8 and 9. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Everybody there, hold your final authority up. What does it say, Alan? But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, not if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he is not his. Okay. If anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he's not his. Is that right? So what Paul was saying here, Paul was saying, listen, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not, you're not of Christ, you're not saved. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If any man hears my voice and will open the door of his heart, Jesus will come in and tell the Holy Spirit to wait outside. Does that even make sense? Shema, the Shema, the word Shema, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Ahad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, What was something a Jew just literally made sure God is what? He's one. God doesn't come, God's not a piece of pie that you divide up and bring in when you get ready for him. He comes in lock, stock, and barrel. So that's why we hold to the conviction that we hold here. So um, here you receive Christ. So you recognize, you repent, you receive Christ, and he, he begins to reside in you. Now he's living in you. You're in Christ, Christ is in you. And God begins to reprogram you, right? In Romans eight twenty nine, it says this. Listen to this. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of who? Let me tell you what God did. The moment you got saved, you know what God said? We're on a journey now. I'm now in the process. God is speaking. God says, my journey for your life now is basically this. I want you to look like who? I want you to look like Jesus. So he predestined, pre is before, destinate, Uh, to destine, so before, the destination before or when you came to Christ was this, God is ensuring that you and I will look like Jesus when we stand before him one day. That's why you're going to get, that's why you're going to be judged the way you'll be judged. So, um, so we're filled. Now we're filled with who? Yeah, we're filled with the Holy Spirit, but we're filled with the Spirit of Jesus Christ. We now have Christ living in us. I was speaking to about 50 African-American young men one day. Steve Harper and I were down here doing a little basketball program. These guys were late teens, early 20s. I looked at them at one point. Steve had asked me to speak, and I looked at them, and I said, suppose LeBron James died. Well, they immediately looked sad, except for the Chicago Bulls fans. But, you know, they looked sad. And I, and I said, suppose LeBron James died. And, and, and I woke up at 1 o'clock in the morning with him grabbing my toe, this ghost-like spirit-looking figure, and he says, hey, 60-year-old white man who can't play basketball, I'm going to come live in you, and I'm going to make you the greatest basketball player of all time. Now, I only have one thing. When I come to live in you and start playing basketball through you, you just... You, what do we say this word means here? Andrew, what does that word mean? It means under the control. 
He says to me, LeBron James says, listen, I'm going to come in you. I'm going to make you a 60-year-old white man who can't dribble with his left hand, who's only five foot ten, who can't slam dunk, who's not any good at basketball. I'm going to make you the greatest basketball player of all time. But you've got to allow me to fill you, take control of your members, of your faculty, your mind, your hands, your legs, everything. Stay out of the way and let me live it through you. Okay? Does that make sense? That's what it means when the Holy Spirit says, listen, I'm going to make you successful in moral and ethical decisions of life. I'm going to make you like Jesus. You're going to have life and you're going to have it abundantly because Jesus says you're going to let me live it through you. Does that make sense? So you receive him and he begins to reprogram you. And all of a sudden your life begins to change. Now, let's move to the practical because... What about the practical things of the church? Um, somebody open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 40, and read that. First one to stand up uh, gets, uh, gets to be taken out for a free meal by Cameron. Okay, Hebrews 14, 40. Okay, Cameron, you got to take him out to eat. Go ahead, Doug. Okay, Logan's after the service, so 1 Corinthians 14, 40, read it. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Okay, Let, a fitting and orderly way. Now, Paul's talking to the most troublesome church that he had, the church of Corinth. He wrote longer letters to this church. He wrote four letters. One of them is referred to as the severe letter. We have two of them, and they're long letters. I mean, they're a lot bigger than Galatians or Ephesians or Colossians or the two letters, the Thessalonica. I mean, these are big letters. Let me tell you, their problem in that church was they did not do things the way Paul said, in a fitting and orderly way. You know what that means? That means with integrity. Now, everybody look this way. For a local church to operate correctly according to biblical standards, it is pastor-led, deacon served, committee run. If a church is going to be effective, then it needs to understand that it needs those three things. So number one, it's going to be pastor led, it's going to be deacon served, and it's going to be committee, committee run. Okay? Now, when a church moves away from that, more often than not, they're going to have problems. This word pastor, in fact, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. I want all of you to turn there. So you've got your final authority. You've got the word of God. You've got the all scripture is God breathed. So what does the Bible say about your relationship to me as your pastor? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Are you there yet? Now, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, listen to what it says. It says, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. Why? They keep watch over you as men who must do what? What do they got? Give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Paul in 1 Timothy talks about a pastor. In fact, I tell you what, 
Take a left from Hebrews because you, you, need, you and I need to see this. Take a, take a left. Go over to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now watch what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1. Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach. The husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage what? His own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert. He, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall in disgrace and into the devil's trap. Paul uses the word there, episkopos. Epi means over. Skopos means watch. And so what Paul is saying, that in the local church, there is to be an overseer, an under-shepherd, a bishop, one individual that God has placed there to, to oversee or to, ha- to be watchful over a congregation. That's my responsibility. Now, let me say this. Uh, no pastor is perfect. When I read that, it scares me. But in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, going back to that, let's go back to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. I want you to see it now. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, it says, what's the first word there? Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. Obey is that Greek word pytho. The word submit is hupatasso, and this is what it is. Everybody look this way. In the military... When I was in officer school, this is what we would do. They'd say, fall in. We'd come out. We'd stand out there. We had the meanest. We had an African-American sergeant that was the meanest creature on the earth. I thought the guy had come out of the pit of hell. And when he hollered, fall in, I didn't care what you meant. Look, you could be on the pot. You were going to get out there. There was no excuse whatsoever. We would quickly fall in, and immediately we would dress it right. The reason we would dress it right is that we were all looking to put ourselves in line, in formation. We were falling into rank. That's what the word hupatasso, to submit, it means to fall in rank. So the Bible tells you and I that in the case of a pastor, we are to obey, pytho, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. Now let me give you a principle here. God will never hold you accountable for something that he does not give you authority over. Did you hear that? God will never, amen, amen. Oh, you better be going, uh (laughs) uh-oh. Man, I'm in trouble now because wives wives are told to hupatasso, fall in line, fall in rank to who? To their husband. So let's, let's repeat that principle again. God will never hold you accountable for something that he does not give you authority over. Let me give you an example. Andrew used to be a manager at Nukes. 
And everybody ought to be in management at least one time. Now, he was a manager in Nukes. Now, he was given an authority to manage people so that when the owner came, the owner who had given him that authority would also hold him accountable. Now, next door on Crossgate's exit, he was at the Nukes. Next door is what? Your old employer. Yeah, Applebee's. Now, the owner of Nukes, did the owner of Nukes ever hold you accountable for what was happening over at Applebee's? Never. Okay. Now, you may say, well, you know, that's kind of a silly thing. But you and I need to understand something. That as a pastor, as an overseer, as a bishop, as God's representative in your life watching over you with that spiritual responsibility... He gives me authority, but he says this, I also hold you accountable. You see, let me look this way. When the Bible tells you and I, ladies, when the Bible tells you to submit to your husband, is that sometimes a scary thing? Yeah, man, that can be really scary. When the Bible tells you and I to submit, it tells us about government. It talks about employers. You know, the Bible, there's, there's a lot of chains of authority and accountability. So when the Bible tells you as a congregation to obey your leaders and to pytho to obey and hupatasso to submit to their authority, you would think, you know, wow, I don't, I don't know if I really like that man having that kind of influence, impact, and even control and authority over my life. I don't know that I like that. Well, let me, let me give you something to think about. The word pytho is the word trust. It means to lean. Adrian Rogers used to say this, if you can't, this is at Bellevue in Memphis, a massive church. If you can't follow me, then fire me. In other words, if you can't trust me, if you can't put confidence in my leadership, then you need to mount up an effort and remove me from this position because see, the scripture has told you to obey Pytho, to Hupatasso, submit to my authority. And if you don't trust and can't put confidence in my leadership and my authority, then you need to remove me. That's powerful. Church in Natchez made a decision to try to remove me. So you may say, well, I'm not going to go long, but I want you to stay with me. Now watch what Hebrews 13, 17 says. It says, obey your leaders, submit to their authority. They give, keep watch over you as men who must what? Look this way. Every word right now coming out of this mouth. Right here, I'll be a, I will be held accountable for my position of authority standing up here over you as a congregation. And I'm going to tell you this much, folks. That is a frightening thing to me. I would, hey, listen, I'd rather do anything. If Jesus Christ, Brian showed up right, Brian and Brian, if Jesus Christ showed up right now and he said, hey, you can be anything you want to be. I'm going to let you off on this thing of pastoring. I want to be a college football coach. I love football. I want to coach football. You know, if I could just be, of course, their job's not much more uh, stable than mine. But what I'm saying is, it is a frightening thing. People all the time say, you know, I just want to be a preacher. 
I just want to be a preacher. I want to be like you and be a preacher. Man, listen, preaching's not the tough part. Pastoring is. That's the tough part. So it's a frightening thing to me to be in that position. So the Bible says this. Watch what he goes on to say. Obey them, verse 17, Hebrews 13. Obey them so that their work will be what? Will be a what? Will be a joy, not a what? A burden for that would be of no advantage to you. So let me, I wrote this down. Just bear with me. Many members through the years have made my work difficult. That's, that's just the bottom line. How? Spasmodic attendance. Apathy and indifference about spiritual things. An unwillingness to listen, to show up for preaching or teaching, to follow counsel, insubordination, undermining leadership, gossip, or chasing this belief and that belief. You see, you're sitting down with 250 channels and you've got all kinds of things that are bombarding coming into your life. And a lot of these men and women, listen, they sound really good. But let me tell you something, Joyce Myers is not your pastor. Nor is Benny Hinn, nor is Creflo Dollar. I never thought there was a more appropriate name for a man. The bottom line is, is that your pastor, Brother Jeff, as long as you keep me here, I'm the overseer, the under-shepherd, the one who has been instructed to watch over you. You have a responsibility to me, I have a responsibility to you, and I will one day be held accountable to God. Now let me tell you something, look this way, Joyce Myers will be held accountable too. Now, I'm not picking on Joyce Myers. Joyce Myers, if she were standing here, would tell you, I'm not your pastor. So this is critical. I spoke to a member this past week. I was on my way down to see my new grandson. Sheila and I made it from here to Pensacola in three hours. And Sheila got in there just when the doctor said to Megan, push. On my way down, I got a phone call. A man of family used to be in this church. Key family, core family. This man on the other end of that phone basically said this. My life is absolute hell on earth. He left this church. He's divorced. He's had trouble with his kids. His life is absolutely a chaotic mess. Look this way. You want me to tell you why? He didn't listen to his pastor. She didn't listen to the pastor. And the outcome of that is they were a burden to me, not a joy. And the outcome is this. Watch the latter part of that. Not a burden, for that would be of what? You see it? The very last part of that, of no advantage to who? To you. That means you. You know, let me say this. Sheila and I, your pastor's wife and I, we're a gift. You know, some of you have never invited us into your home to eat. Now, I'm not trying to get a free meal. But if, you had a, if you've got a lost family member, doesn't it make sense? They used to do it all the time. Man, all these old hard, crusty old guys down in the deep south, their wife would faithfully take the kids and go to church. You know what she was doing? She is always dragging the preacher and his wife over to eat. She just wanted to harass her husband. 
I used to go eat with all kinds of farmers. Man, I'd go barreling in there, plop down, football. Yeah, I'd be shouting, carrying on, man, having a great old time, eat right with them. And sooner or later, I would slip over to them and say, hey, man, how's your, how's your relationship with Christ? I'd find a way to get the gospel to. Some of you have problems as parents. Let me ask you something. We've raised four kids. We've got 12 grandkids. We've had 35 years of experience in the ministry. That woman right there will never tell you this, my wife, but let me tell you, she is a preschool expert, and most of you don't even know it. Do you know that in the Mississippi Baptist Convention, do you know who the number one person was teaching in their conferences everywhere across the state? Your pastor's wife. Do you know that the state of Mississippi sought her out again to teach about raising and teaching and leading preschoolers? She's a preschool expert and some of you have never even had her in your home. You see, you and I need to understand something. We are a gift from God to you, not just, not just me, she. Now, let me, let me move. I've got to move quickly. And I haven't taken mind reading 101. In fact, I checked with the deacons. The deacons haven't taken mind reading 101 either. So if you're in the hospital and you've got a need, you need to let us know. And all God's people said, amen. Okay, now we also have what? Deacon serve. That word there is diakonos. It means through the dust. This means that a deacon is moving so quickly to serve the body of believers that he's like the uh, Tasmanian devil or the roadrunner. He's got a cloud of dust behind him. Now, isn't that great? Now, it means here, diakonos is really not just through the dust, it means a waiter. Now, if you raise your hand right now and say, Alan, could you get me a cappuccino and, and get me a scone, You'll probably, he probably won't do that. But let me say this, our deacons were meeting a while ago and they were talking about how to better communicate the needs of this congregation so that they could stay better in tune and on top of ministering and serving you. So there is the deacon. It's a powerful ministry. Who was the first martyr? A deacon. Who was the first international missionary? A deacon. Stephen was the first martyr. He was a deacon. Philip was the first to go to an Ethiopian eunuch. He was a deacon. My friend, listen, a deacon is a powerful tool in the hand of God. It's a joy. Man, I tell you what, I fell in love with a couple of our deacons while we were on this mission trip to Zimbabwe, John Williams and Brian Fioretti. You need to thank God. You need to encourage them. And uh, then finally, what? What did we say? Committee run. Oh, here we come to the here we come to the tough stuff. Let me give you a quote. Committees are laymen and women who are equipped with certain gifts that are beneficial to the smooth functioning of a local church. In other words, what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, chapters 12 through 14, Paul said, We're a body of believers. We all have we all have certain gifts and abilities. Let me give you an example. Chris Brewer, stand up. Stand up, Chris. You're not asleep back here, are you? Oh, no, he's awake. Okay, there's Chris Brewer. Now, Chris, tell us what you are. What are you? What do you do for a living? Okay, he's an electrician. Okay, you can be seated. Now, these lights up here, if we would have had to hire a lot of this work out as an inner city church, we would have never been able to afford this. These lights and many of the things that you see electrically 
have been provided because Chris, who has a gift or ability, was investing and helping us meet needs that we otherwise couldn't hire out. We are a poor church. Say it, poor church. So we, we need all the help we can get. So, so here is Chris Brewer. Now, Southside has three committees. We have, and real quickly, we have, uh, we have this one. What is that? The finance committee. We have, um, we have the personnel committee. And we have, I'm just going to shorten it, we have the building and grounds committee. Now, we're in the process right now of revamping and getting these committees back at full functioning power, which means every committee would have five members. So let's, let's, take, the, let's take the finance committee. The finance committee creates a budget. They sit down, they say, listen, we need to put together a budget. That's everything from staff salaries to paying the light bill to paying the insurance. So they create a budget and the church approves that budget and then the finance committee supervises. Now you may say, well, this is boring. Do you know how many churches the pastor takes care of all the finances? Hey, I not only don't want it, let me tell you something. I don't need that temptation. I thank God for a finance committee and I thank God for those people that are overseeing the budget and the spending of this church. So here you've got to find it. And most of these, all these individuals are, are gifted. They're supervising through the year. The approval, now if it's over, if, let me give you an example. Let's say, that, let's say that John and Eric said in the next business meeting, we want a jacuzzi in the sound room. Okay? So they send it over to Stan, who chairs the building and grounds. They said, listen, it's hard up here. And we're trying to take care of all this and all these people are harassing us over sound and all of that anyway. So we feel like we've earned the right to have a jacuzzi up here in the sound room. So the, they simply, listen, any member, any member can, 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 can do that. They could stand up in a business meeting and they could say, we want a jacuzzi in the sound room. Building and ground says, well, we've got to get two or three bids. The finance committee says, well, that's going to cost more than $250, $300, so it's going to have to go to the floor of the church, thank God. And so the next thing you know, you've got Stan standing up there and said, well, you know, I don't really know, but Building Grounds got some bids. The lowest bid is, is, uh, is $5,500 for a jacuzzi in the sound room. And uh, the finance committee says, uh, you know, together we grow. We could take it out together we grow. And you, the church, are meeting in the business meeting. You're going, what in the world? No, we're not going to give $5,500 for a jacuzzi. You see, the church, and this is important, we are autonomous. I think that's close to the spelling. What that means is this. That means self in the Greek, auto, and nomos means self-law, self-governing. Ultimately, listen, you as a congregation in a local church, and especially among Southern Baptists, you are autonomous. Do you know what you can do? You can fire me. Let me tell you what I've seen. I've seen churches fire the whole deacons. I mean it. Just get rid of all of them. I've seen churches fire all the committees. You see, that's an enormous amount of power. In fact, I wrote this down. If the employees of Nukes throw out Andy, throw out Andrew as a manager, which he's no longer there, then they better have a good reason for doing that when the owner shows up. 
Is that right? That makes sense. So here you've got the finance committee. Now, the danger of the finance committee is that, you know, they can always be, we can't afford it, and it's got to be more than that. Okay, real quickly, I know, we gotta, I know we're getting tired. We've got a personnel committee. Personnel committee is basically responsible for Cameron. They're responsible for Leroy, our custodian. These are what we called, these are people that have been hired. Uh, clerical, if we had a secretary, if we had a financial secretary, personnel committee is putting together a job description, doing performance evaluations, sitting down, saying we're in the process of getting that better organized. The personnel committee has a two role. Number one, that role. The other role is what I call staff advisory committee. They're helping me because we have two God-called men. These men are both ordained ministers. That's Reggie and Jeffrey. In the case of those two men, they are advising me, but they're not necessarily the authority over these two men. Does that make sense? So now, but let me tell you something. The personnel committee can take a great load off of me if they are assisting me in performance evaluation, job descriptions, even among our ordained staff. Now remember, the autonomy of the local church, who ultimately can call the shots if you want to? You. It's a dangerous thing. Laodicea was the people ruled. Where was Jesus when it came to the church at Laodicea? He was, Revelation 3.20, we take that really out of context. He's trying to get into the church at Laodicea. The people were ruling the church. They threw Jesus out. Democratic Party threw God out of their platform to a round of applause. Keep that in mind as you prepare to vote. The Democratic Party removed God from their platform to a strong round of applause. God forbid when a church removes its pastor outside of a moral or ethical biblical issue. So here you've got the finance committee, here you've got the personnel committee, and last you've got the building and grounds committee. Now let me tell you real quickly, real quickly how this works. And I'll lie and tell you we're going to close in a moment, but we really are. Okay, Let, let's, say, let's say that we decided that we wanted a playground for the preschoolers. How many young moms in here would like to see a playground in the preschool? Okay, they're even raising their hand. Sarah's up there and raising her hand in the sound area there. So, so the, here we've got, and let's say that the moms had a mutiny. They, got, they came to the business meeting and they said, listen, we've got a lot of kids and we need a break, especially as it gets cooler in the fall and the, and the spring. So moms say, we want to make a motion that we put a playground, and I think this is a good motion, so that's why I'm using it. We want to put a playground down here, but that costs a good bit of money. So they go to, who are they going to go to? Who does that motion go to? Stan, who does it go to? Stan, you know. It's going to go to the building and grounds. They're going to take that to the building and grounds because the building and grounds is responsible for the upkeep and the maintenance and looking over our facility. So the building and grounds committee says, you know, we think that's a good idea. They go to the finance committee. Finance committee says, hey, we can't afford it. It's just too much money. Those playgrounds cost a lot of money. We just don't have it. And we've got, we might have enough in our Together We Grow, but what if an air conditioning unit goes out? We can't risk it. So the Building and Grounds Committee says to the Finance Committee, well, we're going to go to the floor anyway. We're going to make it work. 
So they go and they basically put it to the floor. Now who ultimately, the autonomy of the local church here is, can, they can, listen, you can kill the motion or make it. You can overrule a committee. You can say to the finance committee, listen, sit down, we're going to do it anyway. Well, where are you going to get the money? We'll get it. We're going to go get Dwayne to go into his mattress where he has his money hidden and we're going to get our playground. Or we're going to get some seat. In fact, I wrote this down. We are going to challenge our people to give over and beyond to make this possible. We're going to talk a member out of their big nest egg that is going to their kids who are going to squander it on an Escalade and a jet ski. That's true. There's senior adults that do this all the time. I've seen them. And one day you'll be looking down from heaven and instead of investing in a van for the children's ministry, you'll see Junior drinking a six-pack and cruising the reservoir. So be very careful in how you stewardship, how much of a good steward you are. Well, I've got to close. Ultimately, the playground comes down to a vote, and the vote was simply B, yes or no, and the church then would figure out how to raise the money to build the playground. That's how churches operate. Um, I don't have time. I've got to close. You know, um, I was sharing this with the deacons. Two illustrations, and then we'll close. Last Sunday, I... I, was, I left here a little discouraged, I'll be honest with you. I, I, I got the dog and pony show of we're looking to move our membership and go somewhere else. I hear that quite often. Uh, and I, I just left out of here really discouraged, really down. In fact, I called Doug to make sure I hadn't made him mad. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. But anyway, Monday, I, uh, I, I called Reggie, and I said, Reggie, I said... Uh, is there any way maybe you and I get together and eat lunch? And he said, yeah. Now, Ledge and their office is downtown Jackson, and parking's a real thing. And so I said, well, what about parking? He said, well, you can park in Ledge's spot. He's not there. So, Ledge, I parked in your spot. And Reggie and I went into Mayflower, a restaurant downtown, and we ate. And I, and I began to share my heart. I said, you know, Reggie, a lot of times people say, well, I want more. I'm not happy. I want this. I want that. Listen to what Reggie said. This is one of your ordained God-called ministers. He made this statement. He said, you know, what do you want? He said, I really want to ask people, what do you want? He said, number one, he said, we have the most authentic worship I've ever experienced. And he was right. When he preached for me while I was on vacation, he was so emotional after the worship, he t- it took him forever to get his emotions under control so that he could preach to you. And you could hear it on the website. How many website sermons I challenge you where you hear the preacher wrestling, fighting back tears, getting his emotions so that he can even preach? So he said, the, he said number one, Southside, most authentic worship I've ever experienced. Chip Henderson said this, one of the largest, evangel- one of the largest Southern Baptist churches in America said about our worship leader, Jeffrey. He said, there is not an ounce of performance in him. It's all passion. Well, you know, I thought to myself, isn't that what we want? When Jana gets up here and leads us in a moment, don't we want that? A little while ago, Jana, Alicia, Andrew, we were sitting in there, some of us sitting in there, and Jana began to talk and share her heart and where she was spiritually. Let me tell you what I want. I want people that are real, authentic up here. 
And so Reggie said, that's number one. Number two, he said, we have a congregation of real, transparent men and women who I believe, now this is Reggie talking, who I believe genuinely are trying to seek the will of God for their lives. They are broken lives, weekly at the altar, men and women who are transparent. Now he's talking about you. Men and women who are transparent, who are real, and there's no performance in them. He said from the homeless to the wealthiest man, they can sit in this congregation and it's real, it's transparent. And Reggie looked at me and he said, what do they want? A millionaire in this state came to visit this church. Most of you didn't know he even showed up. When his funeral took place, Charles Stanley, I was told, preached his funeral. He wrote back. He wrote back to this church, and I think his wife wrote back when he died and said, a multimillionaire, a businessman, Charles Stanley, who I believe preached his funeral, wrote back and said his day, his Sunday at Southside Baptist Church was the best day of his life. Sheila and I were visiting in Brooklyn Tab and it's Jim Cimbala there in Brooklyn Tab in New York City. I walked up to speak to Jim Cimbala. I told him where I was from. He said, I've heard of that church. I know where you are. He went on to make the third one. He said, we have strong, clear, expository, verse-by-verse preaching. He said, what more do they want? We have a pastor who's a former U.S. Army chaplain. He's a former International Mission Board missionary to both England and Africa, to Zimbabwe. He has an earned doctorate from one of the most respected schools in the world today. He has 35 years of experience. He's not proud. He's broken, scarred, and beat up himself and transparent. What more do people want? Wow, let's stand. If I were looking for a church today, let me tell you, 35 years of ministry and all over the world. I've ate with, I've listened, I have ate with uh, Henry Blackaby. I have spent hours talking to Adrian Rogers. I have fellowshiped with Charles Stanley. I've been in some of the greatest churches among some of the greatest men and women. But I can tell you this much, at nearly 60 years of age, I have never experienced a place like this. Now look this way, and the enemy will do everything he can right now to destroy it. Andres Thomas, in the year 2000, the Soviet Union, were, they were releasing political prisoners. Now I want you to stay with me. They were releasing political prisoners. They went into this prison, a Hungarian prison, to where these people had been. They came across a man by the name of Andres Thomas. He had been a prisoner for 55 years. The Soviets imprisoned him in 1945, and he was being released in the year 2000. The Soviets said to a Hungarian psychiatrist, this man is crazy, he's a nut, he just rambles. 55 years in a hole, in a, in a hole literally in the earth. The Hungarian psychiatrist went in to speak to Andres Thomas 
as he spoke to them, he came, as he spoke to this man, he came out, he looked at the Soviets. He said, this man is not insane. This man's not crazy. This man is, in, this man is brilliant. He's speaking in a Hungarian dialect that is very, very old. So this Hungarian psychiatrist got the Soviets to give this man over to him. He put this man who for 55 years had been living in a hole in a prison all alone, isolated. He puts him in a wheelchair and as he's wheeling him out, he leans around the wheelchair and he says to this 75-year-old man, he says, is there anything that you want? And this man said in that broken Hungarian dialect, he said, listen to this, a mirror. I want a mirror. I have not seen my face in 55 years. The Hungarian psychiatrist said, I can take care of that. He went, he brought a mirror to that man. This man looked this way. He had seen his face when he was 20 years old. He was now 75. From 20 to 75, 55 years that Hungarian psychiatrist handed him that mirror. He put it in front of his face and he began to weep. And he said, take it away. Take it away. And Robbie Zacharias, who told this story, made this statement. Is there a mirror for the soul? I was listening to that sitting last week in my bachelor days for a week without Sheila who was down there with Jeffrey and Megan and I immediately shouted in that empty house, yes there is, Jesus. He's the mirror to the soul. And I want you to listen to me closely. This church right here, with all of its struggles, battles, and weaknesses, with all of its frailties, listen to me closely, is as close as I've seen to an ecclesia, a body of believers that is a mirror to the soul. When you come here and you experience this worship and you sit under the preaching of the word, you feel the presence and the power of Jesus Christ, His Holy Spirit, and that's many times that people come to this altar and they are praying. Don't let anything get in the way of that. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You, dear Lord, and we love You. We give You all the glory and honor. Lord, You alone are worthy. We thank you, dear Lord, that you are our king. You're the wonderful counselor. You're the mighty God. You're the everlasting father. You're the prince of peace. You're the alpha and the omega, the beginning, the end. You're the foundation of the building, the ecclesia, the church. You are the head, the mind of the body of believers. You are the groom of the bride of Christ. And I pray, dear Lord, if there's any man, woman, boy or girl who does not know you, that this day, that they would give their heart and their life to you, that they would receive you, that they would recognize who you are, that they would repent of their sin and receive you into their heart so that you can begin to reprogram and remake them and conform them into the image of Christ. Lord, we've talked about practical things today, but they are critical to any church. We pray, dear Lord, that we will always do things decently and in order. I pray, dear Lord, there are men and women in this room 
that have prayed that prayer. Some have been baptized, but they have yet to go through new member orientation, which is going on right now. Some have dropped out halfway into it. They need to get through that program and be a member in good standing in this church and plant their lives here. God, would you speak to us? Do a mighty work in the name of Jesus. Amen.